Good morning. Really good to see you. Kind of Joshua Reuben out of the way here. Shovel. Um, just a reminder, if you're part of the marriage course that's been going on the last couple of evenings, we meet again tonight. We've got two more evenings together. One-to-one with Paul David Tripp. He's huge, not in character, but because we've got this wonderful projector up the other end of the school hall. He's massive. He's about eight foot tall. Um, and he's got a watch that's about... I think he's wearing one of those, but on his, uh, on his wrist. If you're part of the course, you know exactly what I mean. He also has the most wonderful moustache. Somebody has joked, I think they might be right, it's the source of his power. Um, so if you're part of that course, come along. If you want to laugh, come along anyway. Half seven tonight in the drama studio. One of um, our favourite series on Netflix, there are many, but one of the most favourite ones from recent years, it runs to six seasons, it's called White Collar. White Collar tells the story of two uh, main characters. One is Peter Burke. Peter Burke is in charge of the White Collar Division of Organised Crime. So if anything's stolen or forged or counterfeit, Peter Burke is someone who gets involved and seeks to uh, find out who's done it. But he can't do it by himself, so he uh, gets someone along to help him who's called Neil Caffrey. Neil Caffrey is a a CI. He's someone who informs on behalf of the criminal community to help the police. And uh, Neil Caffrey and Peter Burke are wedded together, but there's a catch. Because Neil used to steal things for a living, Peter doesn't really trust him. Not 100% anyway. And so he, in the very first episode of the first season, um, he connects an anklet. Not something that's attractive or gold-looking, but something that he can keep a tabs on him. So one of these police anklet goes around his left ankle, so he can always track where he is, or, or so he thinks. Because although Peter is clever and crafty, so too is Neil. He was a criminal after all. But the two of them work together for the common good. And the question throughout the seasons as they work together to solve crime, to get the baddies, as Neil uses his considerable expertise in almost anything illegal, from uh, printing to uh, painting to uh, uh, making sculptures, all sorts, has Neil changed? Is he the genuine article, or is it just faking? Because he knows if he solves enough crimes, the anklet will be removed, and he can go free. He can start a new life. He can pick up his life of crime again, or he can start a new life. What does it mean to look after, or to look like the genuine article? That's Neil's job. He can spot a fake because he's made them for so many years. Peter thinks he can uh, spot a fake, but he needs Neil's help. And I'll tell you that story because 1 John chapter 3, that's exactly what John is doing. How do you know what a genuine, American friends, or a genuine, as it's correctly said, how do you spot a genuine, a true Christian? Look at verses 29 of chapter 2 through to chapter 3, verse 10. John paints three pictures to illustrate two groups of people. Chapter 2, verse 29, there are those people who do what is right. Chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, and then there are those people who keep on sinning, the two groups of people. Then he says another picture of them. Chapter 3, verse 7, there are those people who live for King Jesus and do what is right. And then verse 8 of chapter 3, there are those who do what is sinful. Different pictures of the same two groups of people. Then there's a third picture, verse 9 and 10 of chapter 3. There are those who do not continue to sin. And then verse 10, there are those who do not love the brothers. 
Here is John saying, I'm going to give you the same group of people with three different pictures and three different times so that you can spot the hallmarks of a fake and you can see what a genuine Christian looks like. What does it look like to be a genuine Christian? Three marks, real change, real virtue, real Christ-like living, and then there's a unique attitude as well. Real change, real virtue, and a unique attitude that stems from the heart. Let's look at those together. What's a genuine Christian look like? Point number one, real change. I want to tell you about a story that you find in the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's Jesus versus the uh, religious authorities. And one of the stories that appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is of a woman who's been caught in adultery. The religious leaders grab hold of her and throw her down before Jesus, who's teaching about what it means to be a Christian. They throw this poor woman down in front of Jesus. She's in the dirt. She's been humiliated. She's been looked down upon. She's been cast down. And they say to Jesus, what do you think we should do with this woman? She's been caught in adultery. Don't you know the law of Moses, Jesus? She deserves to be stoned. She deserves to be killed for her crime. She deserves to be condemned because of her sins. And what is really interesting is what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, well, I don't condemn her because really I think that sexual choices and sexual morality is something that each one of us has to choose for ourselves. You see, there's no definite, says Jesus. Uh, you need to decide what's right and wrong. And this woman has chosen that it's okay to sleep with multiple people. But you think it's wrong. I'm not going to condemn her, Jesus does not say. So you should let her go too. Neither does Jesus say this. Jesus does not say... This woman who's come before you are absolutely right, Pharisees and tax collectors. You're absolutely right, religious law experts, because she's committed a sin. And God is holy. The God who landed on Sinai in all his resplendent glory and majesty says that sin cannot be tolerated. So you should stone her. Let me have the first stone. Because God is holy. He cannot stand sinful people. Therefore, you're absolutely right in your decision making. God is perfect. Your decision is right. She's violated the law. Therefore, I condemn her along with you. Jesus doesn't say that either. So what does he say to this poor woman who's been condemned by the religious leaders? Jesus says, let him who is without sin be the one to throw the first stone. He throws the religious leaders a curveball. He says, this is a sin that she's committed. And I don't condemn you. As he looks the poor woman in the eye. Go and sin no more. No polar opposite for Jesus. No, you need to make up your own mind about sin. I'm not going to condemn you. No, God is absolutely holy, therefore everybody is condemned. Jesus says to the people looking on, let him who is without sin be the one to throw the first stone. This is a sin that you've committed, but I'm not going to condemn you. You're not without hope, poor lady. Go and sin no more. Now, how does Jesus do that? Well, he's God, clearly, so he doesn't get caught out. But how does Jesus, how does he have the ability to say, you have lived a sinful life, poor lady, but there is hope for you? Jesus can do that because of the gospel. And the gospel is found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. Did you notice it as we read it? But you know that he appeared, Jesus appeared, so that he might take away our sins. Friends, in one sentence, conduced down, boiled down like a fine chef, John reduces, condenses the whole of the gospel to a few words. And he says this, this is how Jesus can answer a lady caught in adultery in a way that he did, 
And this is what he can say to you this morning if you're feeling condemned. But you know again that Jesus appeared so that he might take away our sins. Again and again and again throughout the Gospels, we hear these pithy little summaries of Jesus who came not to save those who are righteous, but those who are sick. Not for those who are healthy, but for those who see their spiritual poverty. Jesus came for people like that. Uh, this is a sin, but I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. But this sentence is explosive. It is TNT if we understand it. It's very confrontational. It's not passive-aggressive, but it is true truth. When Jesus says, I've come to save you because you cannot save yourselves. That's the gospel in verse 5. You are so bad and so am I. We are so bad, we're so helpless. We're in such desperate need that we don't need a doctor. We need someone to rescue us. People have started to say in the modern Christian world that we are broken people. That's absolutely right, but that also is slightly unhelpful. If we are only broken, then we just need a handyman to fix us. That's not true. We are so sinful to our very core that we stand before a holy God who cannot abide sin. We don't need a handyman, we need a saviour. That needs to be understood as well. And this sentence is saying, you cannot rescue yourself, so you need a rescuer. You cannot save yourself, so you need a saviour. And no other religion will say that. No other religion will say that you cannot save yourselves. But this powerful truth that Jesus Christ has come from heaven to earth on a rescue mission, the ultimate rescue mission that sets up eternal life, brilliant children's talk from Dave, that sets up eternal life through faith in him, reconciliation to a God who should condemn us, but who doesn't because of Jesus. That creates someone with real power to change. It says that in verse 10. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. This sentence is saying, John is saying to us, the sign of being a child of God, the sign of being rescued by King Jesus will be fruit in keeping all repentance. It will be a changed heart, and from that changed heart you do what is right. It's virtue, real change. It does not say it the other way around, like all the other religions in the world do. It does not say doing right will make you a child of God. It does not say, if you do right, the sign that you've done right is that you get a reward, you become the child of God. It says, verse 5, you are so sinful, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. So Jesus Christ has come in the incarnation, he's come at Christmas, and every Christmas we remember it, and every day we should live in the light of it. Jesus has come on this huge rescue mission to save you and I, to offer salvation for all those who would say sorry for their sin and turn to him and embrace him. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're welcomed into his family, you're adopted because of what he has done. And that's why, verse 1 of chapter 3, this is, a, this is an out of the universe sort of love. This is not a, a subtle change. This is um, beyond our own imagination. <clears throat> this is an out of universe, an out of our understanding sort of love that has been lavished upon us, layer upon layer of love in a person whose name is Jesus. And when you grasp that truth, when you begin to understand the gospel, it changes you from the inside and you say, verse 1 of chapter 3, Behold, look at this. I chatted to someone recently who's been to the Grand Canyon. Anyone who's been there, We'll know it's something that lives up. Very few things do, but it lives up to what it builds to be. 
It's remarkable that God has spoken into being this remarkable strata that is breathtaking. But when you're at the Grand Canyon, one thing that most people do is that they are speechless. They say, look at that, that's amazing. Those are the only words they'll say. Can you believe that? Can you see the depth of it? Can you see the width of it? Can you see the height of it? If you're lucky enough, you can go down and trek in there. You can get a helicopter and actually go into it. That's what a Christian does. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, look at the lavishness. We looked at this last week. Look at the lavishness that God has showered his love upon us. When we grasp that, that creates a real change, a real heart change. Other religions can't imagine that God would come to earth. Other religions, even if they could understand that, think it's absolutely abhorrent that the God who spoke the universe into being would die on the cross, that he'd be ripped to pieces. But in the gospel, we see God who's come to rescue us, dying on the cross for us, for sinful people who don't deserve it, who haven't earned it. And then when we grasp that, we say, chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, behold the grace of God that Jesus Christ, verse 5, has appeared. Not just because he wanted to, but to take away sins, the sins of the world. That's real change. And when that happens, you're born again, you're born anew. And Jesus Christ can come and dwell in your hearts and says to sinful women 2,000 years ago and sinful women and men even today, yes, you are sinful, but you're not condemned because of the cross. And that comes before you start living the right way. It's internal change. I've said that quite quickly because I want to say this quite slowly. What does that produce? How do you spot a genuine Christian? There's real change internally, but there's also fruit. Point number two. It creates not real changes alone, but it creates real virtue. I want to spend some time thinking about verse 10. It creates real virtue. Verse 10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. In other words, when this real change has happened in your life, you do do what is right. You do do what is right. It's the fruit of the gospel, a changed life. Now, if you were listening carefully when the Bible was read, which hopefully you were, there are a few troubling verses in this passage, notably verse 6 and verse 9. Verse 6 and verse 9, you would hope there's a typo going on there. But we don't believe in typos if we believe that the Bible was written and inspired by God. Because it seems to be saying, when this real change happens... When you, God gives you a new heart, new affections, when you're born again, you'll never sin again. That's what verse 6 and verse 9 appear to be saying. Verse 6 says, No one who lives in him, in Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. It's a troubling verse. Verse 9, it gets worse. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Now that cannot mean Christians don't sin. How do I know that? Because if you flick a few pages back, in, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says, just two chapters earlier, anyone who says they have no sin, they're a liar. So it can't mean that Christians don't sin. What I think it is saying is this, when you do sin, like it says in chapter 1, verse 8 and following, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. In this life, in the white part of our existence, 
at the beginning of the rope before eternity comes into reality. We will struggle with sin, but there will be real change. And this real change from a changed heart produces fruit. In keeping with repentance, we have new appetites. What I think John is saying in chapter 3 is this. Where a sign of that real change happening, the sign of renewal in your heart and life, a sign that you know Jesus personally, is that habitual sin is no longer a reality. We still struggle with sin. We are still rebels in our hearts, but we're under new management. But if you are born of Jesus Christ, if you trust him with your life, if there's a day in your life or a period in your life that you can look back upon and say, that is when I became a Christian, I wasn't born a Christian, but I became a Christian at that time or on that date or at that time, if you're being very specific, a type A person. That means change in your heart is going to mean fruit in your life. We can see this because in these few sentences, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, the verbs are progressive, they're continuous. In other words, it's not a thing that happened and happened alone in the past. There is fruit that is growing. It's a, it's a plural and it's progressive and it's ongoing. But there's a real change, and that's seen in changed priorities and changed values. John is not saying, don't come to me in times of a crisis when you say you've had a bad week, when you've done something that you know is morally wrong in your life. Don't come to me and measure your Christianity, your fruit, in a time of crisis. Change is longer term, it's ongoing, it's continual. So the question to ask ourselves if we're Christians here this morning is this. Are there habitual patterns in our life that have gone unchecked, that are long-term, that are permanent, that are pet sins that we care for and look after? Look at verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. John's talking about long-term. He's not talking about a crisis. He's talking about long-term, settled happiness with sin. No one who lives like that will be a Christian because there's real change in the heart. There's a new affections. So what do we understand by verse 9? No one who is born of God will continue to sin. He's talking here about a seed. 1 and 2 Peter are very helpful that describe that seed as the Holy Spirit who God sends into the heart of everyone who becomes a Christian. So they have new taste buds, new affections, new priorities. But from this sentence, verse 9, there is a comfort that it's not about crisis, it's about our ongoing life. But there's also a moment of conviction. Firstly, a comfort and then a conviction. What does it mean, verse 9, that God places his seed in our life? What does that mean? Think about this horticultural friends, those people that call... Uh, Soil, soil, not dirt. That means you like gardening. When you plant a seed and you water it in, there is no immediate side that you've sweated your brow, that you've cultivated the ground, that you've planted a seed, that you've watered it. There's no sign that you've done anything apart from the, the mud or the soil looks a bit neater, right? But the seed is in there, but you can't see it growing immediately. John, and I think the gospel is describing, God rarely changes people's lives like a tidal wave. You know when a tidal hit, uh, wave hits, there is dramatic engulfing billions of tons of water that consume and drown out everything. There's change, geographical change. There's a surfer on top of it on a tidal wave as well. This is unique time in your life. But John is saying, no, no, no. 
To understand the Christian life, verse 9, you need to understand that, that God has implanted his imperishable seed in your heart. And that means long term, not crisis. You need to look at long term. You plant this seed into someone's uh, heart and you may see granule, gradual change. Well, you certainly will see gradual change, but you may not see immediate tidal wave change. You'll see something that's slow and deliberate, a process that undertakes months and weeks and years and decades. That's how you can see Christian fruit, not in a crisis. Now, this is a word of comfort because some of us who are new to the Christian faith may think there's been no tidal wave in my life, there's been no radical change. Well, take on verse 9. This is gradual. God goes to work on your heart. He goes to work on your motivations. He goes to work on your future and your priorities. Slow, gradual, but real and lasting change. But some of us who are longer-term Christians need to hear a different word. Not comfort, but conviction. There's lots of growth that is uh, mysterious and slow and gradual. Think of it like this. Trees grow. You can often see that with leaves coming out. You can see them with uh, the, the span and the canopy of a tree growing. But trees also grow in winter, don't they? You can see our oh, spring and summer, that's the time they grow, but trees also grow in winter. They grow and the rings grow in depth or in uh, scope or in largeness or in other tree growing words. Sometimes you cannot see growth in winter, but a tree still grows in winter. There may not be any fruit growing, but the growth is still happening. That could be a metaphor really for the Christian life. There will be times in your life when God sends you into the wilderness and you think there's no growth. I've known God for a long time, and I'm struggling. I feel dry. Friends, can I encourage you? You're still growing, but the growth will be slower. It's not a tidal wave. It's a seed, and the seed is growing. The seed is at work. It's, in, it's an encouragement because it's gradual and slow, but the change is still there. The growth is still happening, even if, like a tree, you're growing in wintertime. But what about a conviction? If that's a comfort that uh, it's gradual and you can grow in winter times, what about, a, uh, what about a conviction word? Comfort and conviction from verse 9. Here's a conviction. Anyone who understands the gospel should not put up with any prevailing sin in their life, a habitual ongoing sin, not crisis. This is long-term stuff. If you are settling for a uh, habitual sin, it's like you're a very poor or a lousy or a lazy gardener. You're settling for too little. You need to prune. You need to be aggressive. If you're a Christian here this morning and you think of a time where God by his spirit put his finger on something in your life and you, you sought to put a sin, a big sin, to death, all of us hopefully can think of a sin where we struggle with pride and we sought to control our tongues. We struggle with gambling and we stopped it. Big sins, identifiable sins. But this verse, verse 9, is also convicting sentence because it's saying you've got God's seed in you. Now work with me because it's a more warm morning. Uh, if you plant a popper you expect to get a, if you plant an apple you start to get a apple tree if the seed's still in there. If you plant a tree seed you're going to get a tree of different variety. But what does God's seed, verse 9, contain in you? God's seed contains the glory of God, and that gets planted in your heart. It will be gradual change, 
but it will be lasting change. If you plant a daffodil seed, let's say, a daffodil bulb, you misplace it, you pour some concrete on top, there's not enough latent power in the daffodil seed to push open the concrete, is there? It will just die out, it will wither and die. But if you plant an oak tree seed underneath the concrete slab that you then pour on top, that has enough power gradually, slowly, to build up and to crack the concrete and it will grow through it. Friends, in your heart, here's the convicting word, not the comfort word. Christian friend, if you are um, enjoying living with, indulging a pattern of sinful behavior in your life, remember that in your heart you have not an apple, not an oak, not a poppy. You have the glory of God, that gospel seed in your heart. What are you indulging yourself with? Is it, is it something that you've forgotten? So rather than the daffodil seed, you, you've covered over the glory of God, the gospel seed, with a, with a covering, not of concrete, but of anxiety. I'm just struggling with anxiety, and this seed is not power, powerful enough to break through. That's not true. Are there certain fears that you've, uh, you've just indulged with? And so it's like a, a thick covering over the gospel seed. Is it anger or a terrible past that you can't deal with? You think the gospel is not powerful enough. Friends, it is. And that's what Jesus can say to this lady caught in adultery. You have sinned, but I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Understand the gospel and move on. Process the gospel, not intellectually, but in your heart. It's not a daffodil seed. The gospel is like an oak tree. It can break through anything because it's the glory of God in your heart. Help you deal with your past. Long-term Christians, are you still changing? Mature Christians, are you still maturing? Can you see growth? Can you see a ring, whether it's in winter or in springtime, growing in your Christian maturity? It's a bit like snowball. One of the uh, privileges of having kids is you get to watch some good kids' uh, films. They're so clever these days that they're marketed for adults as well as for children. Uh, one of the recent ones we saw was The Secret Life of Pets. It's brilliant. We own it now. In The Secret Life of Pets, there is a lovely, lovely, snowy-looking rabbit. He is so cute. He's so fluffy. Long tails, the lot. Long, it, long tails? Long ears, small tail. He's so cute. But when you get close to him, he is the mastermind of a criminal empire. And he grows in size and stature and attacks people that try and kind of put their hands on him. Now, who on earth would want Snowball, the real Snowball, not the cute-looking one, but the real-life uh, mastermind of this empire? Who would want to keep a pet like that? There was a time I went on a holiday with John, and, and our families went on a holiday together to Jersey. And we stayed at this very unique home, shall we say. And the lady said, oh, I've got a few pets around the house. We walked into the kitchen. You heard me right. We walked into the kitchen, and there was this huge cabinet with a boa constrictor in it. Now, there's a lot of health hazards going on there, let alone the fact that this lady is comfortable to have a boa constrictor as a pet. Now, you can laugh at that, but that was brought home to me this week when I read uh, a little blog post about uh, a man who's reading um, some material with some other Christian friends. And he's saying this, every Christian is in danger of having a pet sin. You know what you do with pets? You feed them. You indulge them. Pets are there that are just walk around with you in every part of your life. They befriend you. They cost you money and time and resources, but you always care for your pet, unless you're like me and don't have physical pets. Sin can be like a pet in your life. 
you say, oh, I can easily spot a boa constrictor, or I can spot a rottweiler, but what about if your pet is more cozy looking? What about if your sin looks more like a Labrador? They're just enjoyable to have around. I mean, it's not really a big deal. It's what I do in my time on my computer. No one gets hurt. It's my pet sin. It's gossip. Gossip doesn't really hurt anyone. I say it to my closest friend, and I put language around it and say, I'm praying for you. But actually, it's really gossip when you look closely at it. Friends, many of us can be walking around in our Christian lives, and we've got our pet sin Labrador just by our ankle. Not a boa constrictor, because we'd all say, come on, that's out of order. It's not an alligator, because we'd give that one away. Our pets are more cozy looking. They're just like snowball, but actually they're deadly. They're just like the boa constrictor who, if you did let the glass back, it could bite you and kill you. Friends, do we take sins seriously? Verse 9 is a sentence of great comfort. Great comfort, but also great conviction. You can grow gradually because God's seed is in your heart. Sometimes growth is rapid, sometimes it's gradual. But it's also a very challenging sentence because it says, there should be no place for habitual pet sins in the life of a Christian. How do you spot a pet sin? You can easily spot a pet sin by saying, it's the one thing you hate to have challenged. Do you know how much time you spend on your leisure? No, I don't. How dare you say that? Do you know, uh, not just when someone puts their finger on it, but if you're prone to defend it, that's a sign it's your pet sin. What about that one thing, when you've got time, your heart or your thoughts naturally run to? That could be your pet sin or your, your source of comfort and security. That one thing that you're unwilling to give up your pet sin. I need to do this. I need to have ice cream last thing at night. I always need to have a chocolate bar when I go to and you can fill in the gaps. Friend, what is your pet sin if you're a Christian? What's your pet sin that you comfortably enjoy and indulge? Are you changing? John is saying anyone who has the seed, the spirit of God in our hearts and lives will not be comfortable with sin, not habitual sin. This is not about a crisis. This is the lifestyle of continual growth. Real life, real change, real virtue that comes. But finally, a unique attitude, verse 10, a unique attitude. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. A Christian is someone who can say, I am, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God has changed me. I'm a work in progress. I've not reached perfection, and I never will this side of eternity. But God has come into my life and has changed me, and I'm a work in progress. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in central London, and he gave this superb illustration that I read this week about a family. He's trying to unpick the difference between knowing truth about God and it having no impact on your life. So you can be a person who knows the truth, but you're prickly, there's no grace in your life. You can be someone who knows the grace of God, but actually you're not more than any truth, you're not more than gospel proclamation. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was saying, actually the two should come together. And he tells the story of a family. He tells the story of a young man who was a skeptic. He was thinking through Christian things, but he wasn't sure whether to become a Christian or not. And he told Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones about his family and how they worked. 
he said, let me tell you about my dad. My dad, well, he struggled with alcohol. He struggled with women. He was uh, impossible to live with, but I loved him. He was someone who was really gentle when he wasn't on the boots. But then, uh, let me tell you about my mother. My mum was someone who knew the, the law. She was someone who said she was a Christian. She was someone who was critical, but really someone at the same time who was highly moral. She knew the truth, but there was no grace. And then there's my dad, who he had lots of grace, but no truth. And he described his mother in a remarkable way. She had such high morality. She knew the truth so, uh, in so much detail that she was like a snowflake. She was symmetrical, flawless, perfect, and yet she was cold. Friends, that is so telling, because the man said to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, if I was going to live with one of them, I would live with my dad, because he knew the grace, but he had a lot of work to do on truth. And he was saying, I don't know whether to come back to Christianity or not. Friends, these sentences in verse 10 and verse 9 as well are saying, here is the impact, here's how you can spot a genuine Christian, real change in their heart from verse 5. And that shows that the seed of God is at work in their life, verse 9. They're aggressive towards sin. They're not comfortable or lax towards it. But there's someone who can say, I'm a child of God. Behold what God has done for me, verse 1. And God has changed me. There's someone you want to be around because they know the truth of the gospel, but they're saturated by grace. They're hopeful people. They're not overly critical people. They're people who when you meet with them and when they share their brokenness of their life, that they've been rebels, that they've made mistakes, they own those things, but they're repentant. They're hopeful. They're not comfortable with sin. And why is that? That they're neither like the mum or the dad in that illustration. They bring the two people together, truth and grace and grace and truth. Because they've encountered, they've encountered the creative words of Jesus who can say to a sinful person, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And that's what they say to everybody else when they open up their hearts to them as well. Do you see that as a unique attitude of understanding the grace that's come into our lives and so that grace is shown to other people in abundance. Maybe be a church like that. Verse 10. Here's the unique attitude. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. But nor is anyone who does not love his brother. No skepticism, but genuine Christ-like love and affection that's hopeful. Why? Verse 9. Because God's seed is at work in our lives. Gradual, real change. Let's pray together. Father, it's really easy to look like the real thing, but it's just a veneer. Help us to be increasingly a church family where when we turn our chairs and talk, when we pick up the phone and call, when we walk and cry, we are people who seek to put to death by the power that you've placed in our hearts, sin in our lives. Forgive me, forgive us for pet sins that just linger around, that we indulge, that we take care of. Forgive us for that and please help us to put those things to death. That we would love you more and treasure you more and therefore be able to be people who are not like that mum or dad not snowflake Christians who are cold, not just grace-filled people who are without substance, but we'll be people of tr grace and truth, people who don't condemn other people, but people who are generous with our affections, 
but always pointing others away from ourselves and to you to say, behold, oh, how the grace of God amazes me. Help us be people like that, I pray. Amen.